I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Ryan Saro is a writer and actor based in the Hamilton area. He joined me to talk about his upcoming production, Best Barred Bits, on for one night only on September the 22nd at Gage Park in Hamilton. In this conversation, we talk about how Best Barred Bits is more than just a Shakespeare review, how he was once partially buried alive as part of a site-specific theater project, how Monty Python's Flying Circus may have been what first made him love Shakespeare, and much more. Here's our conversation. the browser i don't usually use so it's like just to get everything <laughs> off the screen because i have I'm, yeah i don't know about you i have so many tabs open yeah. at any given time that i also have um programs for saving things that i might want to have open later yep so they don't have to be open now that's how bad it is it's a strange addiction <laughs> i think everybody does that I, I i there was a bit of a fib when i said i have a few tabs open i have many tabs open. <laughs> Um, and they are all things that it's like, I'm going to get to that. Yes. So that's I've the got, problem with yeah. tabs. <laughs> and of yeah. course, when you're, if you're, if you're in the process of writing something, there's all of the tabs that are, are things that you're referencing for all of the things <laughs> that you're working on yep. and you can't close mm-hmm. them. What if you forget about nope. them? I'm using those. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was so actually, like, I was in a writing session earlier today yeah. and I was pretty good about that actually. So Ooh. I had opened a couple of tabs. I had to reference. It, it was like a Christmas show. Right. Uh, that I, I was doing a rewrite on a Christmas show that a friend of mine had hired me to do. And um, he'd originally hired me to, to give him some notes. And I gave him the notes. And he was like, do you want to do the rewrite? I'll pay you extra money. <laughs> and that was the magic words. Mm-hmm. And so I was doing the rewrite and working on it uh, this morning and I mean, I've been working on it for a couple of weeks, but I was working on it this morning and I had these tabs open and it's a Christmas show. And so I'm, I'm having the, uh, angel character reference Bible verses. And I was like, I mostly remember what that verse is talking about, but, um, perhaps I should bring up the actual words <laughs> and get it right because I feel like the angel might remember that. 
Yeah, no, it's and it's it's bad when you when you know you think you remember something and you write it and then somebody's like, actually, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not what I, it and, says. And I am a hundred percent that guy. If I get the inkling that anything like that is <laughs> is off, I'll be. Does it? Is that actually what is? Is that really? Was that when that battle was fought? When that you know just whatever it is. <laughs> the the one that I'm very pedantic about and that I make fun of all the time there have been like there's like one theater show that i can think of off the top of my head that i've seen where uh two factors happened one they used firearms and two they got them right (laughs) (laughs) i cannot tell you now i don't think i've seen anything at like a uh shaw stratford kind of level where i i feel like they probably had firearms experts come in and tell them how to do stuff so yeah. I can't recall seeing anything there with firearms, <clears throat> but there, I've seen several at like fringe festivals or things like that. And this is going to be a surprise to everybody, but the Venn diagram of people who know about firearms and people who make independent theater shows, that is not, that looks like goggles staring at you. There right. is no overlap on that Venn diagram. <laughs> It's, it's, it's rough. The whole, the whole, uh, you know, when you're, when you're writing something, you're thinking like, I know enough about this. And then you're like putting it on the stage and you're like, yep. it's fringe and we don't have any money. And then you're like, <laughs> you do something and yep. anybody who knows anything about the topic that you're doing, like, like yep. drugs or drugs, um, like, like guns, yeah. swords, things like that. And there's always a, yep. somebody who's like, nope. Well, sword people are, <laughs> ironically, I think the sword thing on stage is a bit of a double edge because <laughs> if you get it, I, yeah, uh, if you get it right, uh, it probably won't look good on stage. Yes. Uh, and so there are certain things, uh, I've actually done a bit of, uh, uh, exploration on YouTube, watching these, uh, H-E-M-A, HEMA. It stands for historical European martial arts. And they do, um, they study like ancient medieval sword manuals and figure out how to actually fence like a knight. And when you see enough of those videos, it kind of messes with your brain the next time you see a stage combat thing because they are not the same thing. It's, it's like real martial arts and yes. then stage fighting. It's not yes. the same thing because you're no. never actually trying to hit anybody. It's too slow. It doesn't work right. Or there's a flurry of moves on stage or on screen because you want to see this exciting martial arts demonstration, but that's not what it really looks like. It really looks like people kind of feeling out each other's guards and then one guy pummeling the other guy in the head. Yeah. Right? doesn't really look like no, anything that you actually not, want to watch. That's not dramatic. And that's exactly. the difference. And my friends who are, you know, stay, fight choreographers, they will talk about that because, you know, they've studied yeah. the actual, you know, what it actually looks like. And then you, they're like, yeah, yeah. it it looks like this and uh, this yeah. is what this is what an actual sword fight would look like and but and you they show you and they're like but that's boring <laughs> yeah if you want a lot of people make fun of the uh the fight between obi-wan kenobi and darth vader in the first well okay the fourth star wars movie, <laughs> depending <laughs> on how you want to count it in a new hope and they say oh it's these slow old guys barely able to move and some of that is practical because they couldn't actually smash these light bulbs together but if you watch, um, I did at some point just completely independent 
of anything Star Wars. I just wanted to see what a real kendo match looked like. And I looked one of those up and I watched a bunch of kendo masters fighting. It's really close to the way mm. that that duel actually goes. They, they almost like tap the swords together a few times. Like they're very, very much like slowly feeling the other one's defenses out before mm -hmm. there's a couple of quick cuts and then they'll back off again. And it looks very, very similar to what they wound up doing in the A New Hope duel. And that's one of those things where like, I can kind of watch it now and go, that looks like what real kendo masters look like. So it doesn't look slow to me anymore. But mm -hmm. if you don't know that, it does. Well, it's also, I mean, it's, it's, it's very different from what they did in, pre, in, in subsequent films. Um, yes. So it does yeah. really stand out. Yeah. Um, and that's totally on the subsequent films. And again, there were physical yeah. limitations. If they could have swung them faster, they probably would have. But well, first off, I mean, Alec Guinness was old and the other he guy was. couldn't see. Couldn't see. Yeah. Um, so there's all kinds of things that were coming up against them. Uh, in terms of that but of Absolutely. course what makes it work is that it's the story which is what we're getting at which is when you use the fight choreography to tell a story mm -hmm. and to reveal character and to have a moment on screen or on stage that's what makes it exciting to watch it's yeah. not actually whether or not it's good kendo or whether or mm -hmm. not it's good fencing or whether or not it looks cool it's all about whether or not it serves the story which is why yeah. to me sword fights like wesley versus inigo are oh. going to be some of the best it's so it's it's it tells you everything, and that's why that's such a brilliant yeah. sword fight, and why they f shot it last. Because they I didn't took, know they did. They did. It was one of the last yeah. things they shot because they were learning it and learning how to look like they knew what they were doing for the yeah. entirety of the filming <laughs> process. They would have like <laughs> training in the morning or like first thing or at some point during the day, and they would go and they would run the fight, and then they would go and they'd film their other stuff. So by the yeah. time they actually got to it, they looked like swordsmen. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. That's really cool. I didn't know any of that. Um, I looked up at some point, what are the most accurate, not just the best sword fights, but what are the most accurate sword fights on screen? And most sword fighting guys seem to think that it's the duelists, which is a movie from, want to say the 70s hmm. it's got to be the 70s by uh, ridley scott it's one of his hmm. earlier films i think it's pre-alien which would de facto make it the 70s and it's um it's one of the it's keith karen carradine i think and um harvey hmm. keitel mm -hmm. and they fight a series of duels through a movie called duelists in case uh, you were worried about that <laughs> <laughs> and, and they uh they apparently get the sword fighting very very accurate to hmm. what they should be doing hmm. um let's jump in to talk about um <laughs> just to before we digress sure to the point of no return we don't end up talking about the things that we're supposed to talk yeah. about yeah. Um, i want to talk about best bard bids um which yeah. sounds me too Sounds like a, a a great time. Could you describe this show to me? Yeah. So Best Bard Bits is the concept is that you're sitting down to watch four people who are going to basically do a review of Shakespeare's greatest hits, if you will. And so they come out and they introduce the show and they say, we're going to do scenes from Hamlet and we're going to do scenes from Macbeth and Romeo and Juliet. And one of them, Mike comes flying in and goes, and Cymbeline. And the other three go, no, shut up, Mike, shut up. 
we talked about this. We're not doing Cymbeline. Nobody came here to see Cymbeline. We don't even know what that is. And the show is about this guy, Mike, attempting to upstage the rest of the show and by Machiavellian subterfuge, create enough sabotage and chaos that he can sneak bits of Cymbeline into the show and the other people responding to that. Um, and so the other characters are, uh, in it, I play Kilgore, who is a pompous, egomaniacal, constant leading man type. Um, I typecast myself on that one. And, um, and then there's, uh, Jenny, who's kind of always the, the lead, uh, leading lady. And then there's Stacy, who is always like the secondary, uh, uh, actress. And so, of course, at some point, Mike comes over to her and he's like, you ever notice how Kilgore and Jenny get to be the leads and everything? Well, <laughs> if you do Cymbeline with me. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, as far as the average person, the av- mm-hmm. like really average person who doesn't know Shakespeare at all doesn't know that Cymbeline exists. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to them, probably all that exists is Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, and uh, yeah. maybe Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, the ones that they actually want to do. Yeah, the the ones that they've seen or or whatever, the ones they've heard of. Um, And even among people who are who are in the theater, people who know Shakespeare, many people don't know much about Cymbeline. Oh yeah, very little. I had to do a refresher on it (laughs) when I when I sat down to write best bard bits. I had seen a film version with Ethan Hawke, which is very good to my recollection, but it had been long enough that I went, I I gotta go back into this is it is it because people don't know Cymbeline that you were like this is the one that this guy's gonna want to like put in there so there there are many plays that we could have picked we could have picked you know two noble kinsmen or merry wives of windsor there's a lot of ones that people where people won't even know the title um average people who even people who go to the theater even people who've seen quite a bit of shakespeare they might not remember that something like Cymbeline is there why Cymbeline happened was because when this show was being developed, I was sitting down with some people who wanted to do some theater, get some some more theater stuff going in Norfolk County. And specifically, they were interested in Shakespeare. They'd heard through a mutual friend that I did this kind of thing. And so we were just sitting around at a cafe talking about possibilities. And one of us said, um, it'd be great to do a review, basically just doing the show without the the, the gag angle. And I said, the thing is, I would like to do something where there is a through line. So you're not just sitting down and watching people go. And now a scene from Hamlet and now a scene from Romeo and Juliet and so on. And in further conversation, uh, she said that she had been to, I feel like she'd been to, to, to England and had seen what the show that happened to be playing at the globe when she went to see one was Cymbeline. And so we got talking about that for a little bit and that's when it hit me like a thunderbolt out of the blue. Okay, here's the through line. And I pitched them this idea about Mike trying to sabotage things. I don't remember if I called him Mike at the time, but just said there's going to be these four people and one of them is going to try to sabotage it and and he'll be pushing Cymbeline because we were talking about she was saying it was a good show. She enjoyed it, but you know, she'd never heard of it. Nobody knows what it is. I thought that's funny. The the idea that that there's somebody out there who's just obsessed with this show, wants it to happen is going to push it on everybody else. And, you know, there's just great comedy there to be had in any kind of awkward tension like that. <laughs> a great drama or a great comedy out of it. I mean... And so that's how it started. I mean, right from the start, I mean, there's comedy in the fact that somebody is obsessed with Cymbeline because... Yeah. Who? Who? 
is obsessed <laughs> with Cymbeline, of all things. Yes. And his name is Mike, and he's in this play. And I, th- I, I think that's it. I mean, that's the character name. The actor is uh, Carlos Jimenez. And um, and I kind of wrote it hoping that Carlos would take the part. <laughs> that was true of of, um, of all the, the parts. Um, Annalie Flint plays Jenny, and Liz Buchanan plays Stacy. And these are people that I've known for a while. And when you're crafting the script, you're kind of going, this person is going to have a lot of fun with that. And, and I, I think they'll say yes, but boy, I really hope they say yes to being in this show because uh, they're going to really make uh, something wonderful out of it. Right. Yeah. Um, now, I, I have to say that, that, you know, I mean, there, there have been reviews of Shakespeare. Yeah. People do those. And it is literally like, and here's a scene from such and yeah. such. Or, you know, yeah. it, it, which... I guess if you really love Shakespeare, you would go to see that. Yeah. Or if you're looking for some kind of, I don't know, primer on Shakespeare, like beginning yeah. entry, I don't see them. I, you don't see them very often. Um, I think I've yeah. only seen them in like theater school and things like that. But the, giving it a through line and I, like a, a comedic idea and, and throwing some chaos into it, that to me, that sounds like a lot of fun and, and, and what make what elevates this beyond. Uh, just a uh, a review. Yeah. And and that's what I wanted to do because I do love Shakespeare and I think that I would probably enjoy, I love it enough that I think I would enjoy watching people do it as just a straight up review. That would probably be fun, assuming it was well acted. I mean, it can go very wrong very quickly. Yes, yeah. Um, but, uh, but for me, it, a lot of it comes back, weirdly enough, to my obsession slash interest slash respect for Monty Python. And one of the reasons I think Python works where a lot of other sketch comedy shows I've seen haven't worked is that Python always had that through line. It's anarchic, but it Python flows the way a conversation flows, the way that we went from sword fighting to best bard bits, the way that uh, trains of thought go, where you're thinking about one thing and, oh, here comes another. The way that a Wikipedia rabbit trail goes, although I guarantee you that they weren't thinking about Wikipedia back when they first developed the Flying Circus. But, right. But they always, there was a logic. It was a, it was a chaotic logic, but there was a reason the way that it kind of loops around. And to me, that's what sets it apart. And there's this kind of glue with Terry Gilliam's animations and things like that. And it's something that I've thought about where every now and then I go, maybe do I want to try and like put together a group of people and do some sketch comedy? And every now and then I think, yeah, I've, I've never actually done it yet. And one of the things that it's, it's not necessarily holding me back, but one of the things that goes through my mind every time I think about it is, okay, but what's the thing? What's the mm. thing that's going to stick this together? And to me, that was as soon as um, I was talking to these people and, and uh, Joy was her name, she said, uh, she what about a Shakespeare review the the first thing that popped into my head was okay but what's holding it together because mm-hmm. you're going to kill your momentum if you just go from one scene to another just introducing yep. it and then thank you for your applause and here's the next scene right it kind of kills the momentum between the thing but if you're waiting to see how Mike is going to disrupt this one or uh what if how angry is he going to make Kilgore now <laughs> then that creates an added level of tension that's going to hold between the scenes. Um, and even during some of the, uh, the introduction things, because you do have to throw that to the audience as well. You can't count on everybody knowing the exact circumstances in which friends, Romans, countrymen is delivered. Yeah, right. And it's, 
it's a much better monologue if you realize that this monologue is delivered not just as a eulogy to Julius Caesar, but also um, that he is trying to win over the people to his side. And also, very important, I think, that if he does, if he fails at this, Mark Antony will be torn to pieces by an angry mob of people who hate him because Brutus and the others have have created this story where, uh, and I think some of the fun of Julius Caesar, the play, is picking whether which story is actually the true story. But they've at least created a narrative where Caesar was bad and his allies are bad. And so the mob are kind of out for blood. And if Antony cannot swing them with this speech, he might be dead, literally dead. Yeah. And you have to give that to an audience because not everybody's going to remember that or have ever known it to begin with. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I think sometimes people think they know things about Shakespeare mm-hmm. and then that sort of falls apart as soon as like you jump into a scene in the middle of the play and then they're like, yeah. wait, wait, who's that? What? Are, why do they care about this? <laughs> Who? What's going on? Yes. Why and is there poison? I, <laughs> there's always poison. There's almost always cross-dressing. A, a remarkable, a remarkable number of times uh, does it come up in Shakespeare that somebody goes, how am I going to get together with the love of my life? Yes. I know. I'm going to uh, pretend to be dead. And then when yes. they come to get me, <laughs> in two plays, they use a fake potion, a fake poison to create a comatose state. Much Ado About Nothing and Romeo and Juliet both use it to to create a a romantic response in somebody i don't know what was going on in elizabethan england but i mean they had an odd notion of how love potions work i mean there's also uh 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 uh, midsummer night's dream where there's all kinds of like stuff being dripped into people's eyes to make them fall in love yeah one of them never gets out of it that's true that's true. Dimitri, Demetrius r- remains hypnotized at the end of that show. You know, that's one of the things that I think we don't deal with very often is you have a situation <laughs> where in that play, the fairies are like, you know what? We're going to fuck with these people. And, and you know what? Even Bottom gets his real head back. He doesn't yep. get the head of a donkey forever. And all yep. the lovers, they get they get adjusted so that they're back to the person that they're supposed to be in love with, except. Yep. Except for Demetrius. Except for Demetrius, who's still like. They're still like, well, I guess, you know, we think that you should be in love with this person. So, boom, there you go. Boy, it'd be really convenient if you were still in love with her. So, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. we're going to do that. I I love imagining Shakespeare writing this play and then coming to uh, the the cast that that, he's assembling the parts. And they go, what have you got for us today? Well, and he goes, you're never going to believe this. I've got this great play. It's. I call a character bottom and I give him a donkey head. <laughs> His name's bottom. You guys bottom. <laughs> and I think that's another, there's so many kind of misconceptions we have about Shakespeare. It's amazing how many people still don't realize how fun he is and how kind of stupid like that he can be. I it's, mean, we think of him as the as the bard, as this poet supreme, as this uh, incredibly high art. But if you read a comedy of errors, <laughs> he's got range. You know, I think I, I really blame it on the on, on on the Victorians for for taking the fun out of Shakespeare because yeah. they were the yeah. ones who were like they were like this is literature, and we're still dealing with that mm-hmm. today, and people yeah. don't know how fun it is. I mean, yeah. 
Midsummer Night's Dream, I call it a gimme. Like, there are so many chances in that show to, like, make the audience have a great time and fall in love with the show. Yeah. If you fail all the way up to the end, you've still got the play within the play. And that is almost impossible <laughs> to fuck up. Almost. And yeah. so you could, like, if you were, if they were like, I don't know about this play, if you do that right, you've got yeah. a good show. So, oh, yeah. 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 Um, that's actually the the introductory monologue to that is one of my favorite monologues. Yeah. Uh, the the I I don't remember it. I don't have it memorized. <laughs> I used to. Um, I did it for an acting group. We kind of it was called the Actors Forge, and we used to get together to. It was kind of like a class with no teacher. You just kind of learn from each other, and it was really cool. And so a couple of times we would do some Shakespeare stuff. And I, for one of them, I brought in the, uh, that monologue. I can't even, I can't even keep the rude mechanicals names straight, uh, <laughs> the, but the, but the director, yes. uh, the director, uh, I want to Quince. Yeah. And the way that I, I approached the monologue was that he was just sweating <laughs> the whole time. Like just, just couldn't because he's standing in front of the King of Athens and his queen, Theseus and Hippolyta, by the way, they literally right, mythological yeah. characters. Yes. Right? And the, and the queen of the Amazons and the guy that killed the Minotaur. And just like, you know. And so he's standing up there and he's about to present their little weird play. And he's just, he can't remember what's going on. I had a, one of the gags that I came up with was that I, I was clasping my hands the whole time. And at some point, I would slowly unfold them and deliberately check them for lines that I'd clearly written down on my hands because I couldn't remember them in front of Theseus and Apollyta. And that was the way that I played. I had a wonderful time uh, doing it that way. And, and uh, if I ever did uh, Midsummer again, uh, I, would, I would probably want to play uh, Peter Quince, at least if not doubling up with something. But I'd want to yeah. play Peter Quince just so I could do that bit because I think that that's really that I really had enjoyed that and had a lot of fun. It's such a it's such a good bit. The whole thing is yeah. such a good bit. Yeah. Um now there's nothing quite like competent people pretending to be incompetent for a laugh, I is there? I mean I mean <laughs> see that's the difference because because in, incompent people pretending to be competent is tedious and terrible. Oh yes. But competent yeah, it's people awful. pretending to be incompetent because you know, yeah. the Dunning Kruger, they don't know that they're incompetent, but the, the competent people <laughs> playing like complete incompetency is 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 always yeah. fun. Although I've I've long said at, at fringe festivals that the best shows are the best shows, second best shows, worst shows. Um because there is kind of a crazy I don't know if it's Schadenfreude or just or what it is, but there's something about watching somebody just gum up everything. Not deliberately, mm. where you just kind of it, especially if you see it with a friend and you can go to a cafe later <laughs> be like, what was that? Sometimes it's just too painful. Sometimes it's, it's yeah, painful. Sometimes it is. Sometimes. The, so the, the worst shows, in my opinion, are the ones where they kind of were there, but they were just very boring. Do you know yes. what I mean? Like there wasn't yeah. really anything to latch on to. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And those ones, you kind of go, that was fine. To me, that's the worst is, is if you go, because it didn't leave you with anything. You have no. nothing to take away. Yeah. Now, now we've, we have, it's been, it's been, like I said, it's been a, a while since we've had the chance to talk. Um, yeah. and I want to, I want to talk about, about your, your, your theater, your passion for theater, because you've done, you know, you've done, you've done Shakespeare, uh, you mm -hmm. produced your, we, last time we talked, I think we were talking about Richard, the 
third. Um, yeah. And at that time, we probably would have been, because I, I was doing Richard III uh, at the same time that I was putting on the first one-man show I'd ever written and or performed. Right. Um, and uh, it was a wonderful experience in many ways. And I'm super glad that I stuck it out with both of them. But there were points when I was trying to memorize Richard dialogue and then immediately switch over to memorize my one man show dialogue. And so that was, you know, 70 minutes of me talking to myself. Oh, we had a couple yeah. pre-recorded bits, but it was a 70 minute show and it was, it's a one man show. So it was mostly me. And then Richard doesn't shut up in Richard third even in the cut, trimmed, truncated version that I'd, I'd put together. And there right. were points at like one in the morning when I was trying to jam all this stuff into my head. And I'm like, what was I thinking? <laughs> what <laughs> process went through my head going, this would be a great idea. And I had a blast. And I'm glad I, again, I'm glad I stuck with it because I love Richard. It's, he's my favorite part in Shakespeare to play. And, uh, and I loved doing the one-man show. But it was, it, it was rough for a while. Anyways, I, I, I waylaid us again. No, that's fine. I mean, conversation. The the thing about yeah. thing about a one person show, having done a couple, yeah. Um, and the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize, and tell me if you found this, some it, you think that especially the first time, it's going to be so easy to learn those lines because you <laughs> wrote it right. Yeah. How yeah. hard could it be? You wrote it, and then you get yeah. down to it, and you're like, "Who wrote this? Why can't <laughs> I remember it? It's a different part of the brain." <laughs> yeah. Um, I do, I do find my stuff easier to memorize than other people's stuff because it has a natural flow to me, mm -hmm. but easier does not make it easy. No. And, um, I, I'm very proud of this. I used to have what I would call fights between writer Ryan and actor Ryan while I was getting ready for Kathir and actor Ryan would basically come to writer Ryan and go, you know, if you cut a bunch of this. I don't have to memorize it. <laughs> and writer Ryan would invariably reply, just learn your lines. Yes. Yeah. And I'm proud of that because I never sacrificed the quality of the show, the quality of the writing, the convenience. Um, and so I never went, I never did actually say, I'm just going to trim this paragraph. I, I can't memorize it. We're, and so to me, that was putting the work first. The writing came first, which to me, that's the the bedrock of the show. If the script stinks, you, you can elevate scripts, but you can't save bad ones completely. Yeah. I guess unless you send them up or something like that. <laughs> but um, but you you can't really do it. And and so to me, that's that's the core. And I and I I'm not an egomaniac. I don't think that that writers are the the be all end all. To borrow one of Shakespeare's coined phrases. I don't think that they're the most important, but they are the first element. It's like the first threshold you have to pass over. If you don't clear that, you're not going to, it doesn't matter how good the actors are. It doesn't matter how great the director is, the designer, they, they're all going to, if the designer's brilliant and your script stinks, you're going to be looking at a, at a wonderful looking bore. Yeah. And that's yeah. the end of it. Yeah. That's a fact. And that's a fact. And some people, yeah. I, you know, there's people who are like, it can't be that hard to write a play. And then they do it <laughs> and you're like, and then you watch it and you're like, yeah, well. I have seen it a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've seen it a couple of times where somebody's come in and said, um, I've I have always wanted to write, I've heard it once with a play and once with a musical. Mm -hmm. And I've always wanted to write whichever one. And uh, I thought it was going to be really hard. And it, it turns out it was a lot easier than I thought. And inevitably mm. those scripts stunk. 
Yeah. As soon as you did uh, the, the read through ended, you were like, yeah, that you thought it was easy because you did it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. And you yeah, failed the, at it. One of the best pieces of advice I got as somebody who, you know, uh, writes and performs my own stuff. Uh, yeah. Was decide on a date where the writing stops and you are just mm, the actor. Yeah. Um, and I got that from somebody who hadn't done that, who had uh, not turned off their actor brain during rehearsals and performances. And so they were always tweaking, always tweaking, always tweaking, even after yeah. performances. And they never actually felt like they settled into the show and, and really sort of like mm -hmm. knew the show. Um, and so they were like, just decide on a date when the writer is done. And yeah. keep to that. And then the writer doesn't come back into the room until the show's over. That is good advice. I didn't follow it with mine. Um, hmm. And I don't 100% regret it. Uh, partly that was, I think, because... So, Kafir was an interesting journey, though, because it started in a group called the... the what, are we, what was that one? That was the Junction. And it was designed for performer creators. And the, so I, the first year that that went up, um, at Aquarius, I was trying to write my, the first one man show that I'd, I'd ever done and, and worked on it for a while. And then the junction year was over and I independently emailed, uh, Luke Brown, who was running the group. And I said, would you mind working on this with me? And he said, sure. And then he offered me a slot in Aquarius's, uh, studio series. Uh, to do the show while we were working on it. So it was a bit of a, I, I don't think of it as a workshop production, but it was a script that was still being finished and polished. And so I think that's why it probably wasn't a problem that I never really turned off the writer. Hmm. Now I did, I did turn it off once I hit the stage, right. but interestingly, we turned it back on, on Monday morning, uh, hmm. and we refined it based on kind of how it had felt in front of an audience. Right, and so right. we refined it for the next couple of days, and then the next weekend for the second weekend of the run, hmm. uh, we had a an even tighter piece. Hmm. And I don't know if it's a unique aspect of my psyche. I I find it easy to turn on and off switches like that. Right, right. I think it's one of the reasons why method acting has never really appealed to me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because no. I'm like, why why don't you just turn it off? <laughs> <laughs> I did. He said uh, condescendingly I, to Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely had to turn off the writer part of my brain. Yeah, um, yeah. Because uh, I don't think I could have done. I could have really like been able to mm -hmm. really do the show if I hadn't turned it off. Especially also because I I knew because I did learning lines was not particularly easy for me for something that I wrote as a solo show. So um, I knew that if I was going to tweak it and and try to learn it, it was never going to happen. So I had to. Just turn that off like a switch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that that is good advice. And if I ever come back to the arena of the one man show, I probably will try that because that does sound like a creation method, which would be very advantageous. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Yeah. Now, speaking yeah. of one man shows, was there, was there anything in particular that that inspired you that made you want to write a one man show to, to do this? Was there uh cause I, I think everybody who, anybody who writes a one man show, they have, they often are inspired by something else. Uh, so was there a show, was there something that, that made you want to, to do a one man show or was it just like, I haven't done this before. 
uh, I think, well, that was some of it was kind of the challenge of that. And can I do this? Because I'd never tried. So that was certainly some of it. Uh, I think it was partly the nature of the group as well, because it was this thing that, as I said, it was structured for performer creators. And I kind of was thinking of it in those terms. A lot of the other people in the group were kind of working on one person shows as well. And so I think that that sort of nudged me in that direction. Mm. And then just, I didn't have a super clear idea about what I wanted to write about when I went Mm. into the group. And after a couple of sessions, it sort of emerged that this was something that I was interested in. Um, And as it took shape, it kind of shaped itself, I suppose, partly because I was going, I'd like to try the one man show thing, but it sort of, it, it didn't want to break out of that mold either. Um, it, it was a one voice operation. Mm. Mm-hmm. So if, if I recall correctly, it's, it's, it was a while ago that I wrote it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about a, a couple of things. I know that uh, at one point uh, in the past, you had yourself partially buried alive as part of a theater <laughs> show. Can you tell me about, yeah, yeah. first off, what was that show and why? Um, <laughs> uh, so the festival was called the Dark Crop Festival. I haven't checked to see if it's fired up again post-pandemic, but it, it ran for, I think, at least three or four years uh, prior t- to the lockdowns. And it was on in Kitchener. And in the corner of Kitchener, there's a suburb. And in the corner of the suburb, there was this, I sort of describe it as almost like a hobby farm. Like they had chickens and a few goats and things like that. It wasn't uh, acres and acres. To my knowledge, I mean, if it was, maybe it was bigger than I thought. But that seemed to be what they had. And they had an all-night theater festival. It ran from uh, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And so when you applied to this thing, the first year I couldn't do it. I was super busy. But the second year I applied to this thing and maybe third year. And so they say, what, what hour would you like? Do you want like the seven to 10, the 10 to midnight, the midnight? Well, mm. I th- I'm thinking to myself, I can do a 7 p.m. show anywhere. I'm going at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> so then, so then you start to think, okay, what am I going to pitch them? That's perfect for this site specific thing. And the, so they've got like a wooded area. Okay. So the concept that I came up with uh, was a bit inspired by the uh, the Telltale Heart, and a bit inspired by by stories of thieves that have had fallings out. And so the story that I came up with was that it starts with these two guys digging a hole, and they're just shooting the breeze almost. The one guy is kind of monologuing um, about uh, he calls it the woo, like just mysterious things that are kind of silly, right? And the other guy eventually is like, hey, did you hear that? What's going on? And it, it becomes clear that he's a little bit more nervous than his friend. Huh. And as the show goes on, they bring over the card, the, the, the coffin. <clears throat> the, I guess it's more of a casket. It's a box mm-hmm. that has a body in it. And it turns out that these guys were thieves. And there were three of them and they had a falling out and they killed the other guy. Now they're burying the evidence. And one of them is slowly breaking down and he starts to hear like. Right coming from inside the box and he goes off into the woods to, uh, uh, but he starts hearing that coming from inside the box. And then he hears the, the dead body talking to him. Um, and then the, 
they get, he goes, he's still alive in there. We got to get him out. The other guy's going, you're crazy. I, you know, let's just get him in there into the hole in the ground and bury him. And they get into a fight and the nervous guy kills the other guy, breaks open the box. He was hearing things. It was a telltale heart situation Mm -hmm. and it was just his nerves. And the, so when he's pulling the guy out, he's not alive. He's, he is in fact dead. And then this guy runs off terrified into the woods. Hmm. And so somebody had to be in that box. (laughs) (laughs) Now the best part, the best part was I made them seal me into the box before the audience showed up. So the audience doesn't know there's anybody in that box. Right. And in fact, the, the guy who ran the festival afterwards, he came over to us laughing. He goes, when they, he goes, it was so funny. He goes, I didn't know you were in there. He goes, and when they were pulling the box over, I thought, boy, they're doing a really good job of pretending like that's a heavy box. (laughs) (laughs) Like there's a real body in there. And so what's really kind of was cool as a performer. And so they, they partially buried me. So they were like throwing dirt on it at a few points. They didn't get a lot of dirt on there. I mean, it's a 20 minute show. So there's only so deep that they can bear and half of it. They don't even have the box in the hole. So I wasn't like fully interred or anything like that, but they were throwing dirt on this box and slowly filling up the earth around it. And, And so when I knocked on the, on the inside of the box, even inside the box, I could feel the energy of the audience shift. <laughs> because of the ner- the nervous guy and the and the other guy kind of like pontificating about random stuff, we actually got a lot of laughs. Um, in addition mm-hmm. to uh, a spooky vibe, and I asked a couple of people afterwards, "Was it funny to you, or was it was it spooky?" And they said it was both. And I thought that's perfect. Anyways, uh, but but when the knocking happened, there was definitely an energy shift. And then when I had my first lines as this hallucinating hallucinated uh, body like guys guys this kind of thing from the audience i hear somebody go what What? right (laughs) because they didn't know a body was in there and even though there was knocking coming from inside the box that could have been one of the other guys thumping surreptitiously on the side without him Mm. noticing um but but so but that confirmed it that there was actually a guy in the box and it and it freaked him out or or thrilled him or something like that i don't know it was really cool. It was a really cool experience. Very unique. I would, I would tell people about it too. And they'd go, oh, that sounds great. Because I told people about it. You got to come to the Dark Crop Theater Festival and see me go on after midnight doing huh. this show. And uh, that's a hard sell. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> drive, drive up to Kitchener. Um, most of the people that I, I know are from Hamilton. Drive up from Hamilton to Kitchener and come and see the show. My friend Liz, who's in Best Bar Bits, she came to see the show. And so I'd, I'd tell other people about it and they'd go, they go that sounds great are you, are you gonna do it again and i'd kind of be like where am i gonna do it again that's the like, thing like i gotta be i gotta be able to dig a four foot hole <laughs> do it anywhere which the was why i the, wanted to do it absolutely and the only way you'd be able to do it is if you could go into a theater where they had like you could build a false stage yeah that had yeah a space to dig into and fill it with dirt yeah and you need a lot of dirt. I've yeah. seen people dig on stage before, and it's always done very gingerly because they only have like a foot and a half of dirt. Yeah. And you no, inevitably you hear them dirt. hitting the stage. Yeah, yeah. You need, you need literal tons of yes. dirt. Uh, it, it, it's not going to happen. And, and even then, even then, there's something very different because of rain. We actually wound up getting, uh, pushed back from midnight. We went on closer to two in the morning. But like you're on at two in the morning in a wooded area, you can barely see the lights of civilization peeking mm-hmm. through the trees, yeah. and there's a hole in the physical earth, and you can hear those shovels shifting earth 
and you can hear that dirt hitting that box and stuff. There's just a visceral level to it where it's like it was I mean, it was a site specific show. When I make yeah. a site specific show, I'm trying to make sure that if I took it somewhere else, it would lose a lot in the translation yeah. at best. Yeah. And this is one of those where it's like, look, if you're not in a cops of trees at two in the morning <laughs> with dirt, earth being shifted, it's just not the same experience. No. So maybe someday, maybe someday, but uh, the question of where is is very much a factor. But that is always the thing about theater, right? It is this magical thing that exists in a moment, even yeah. if you go to see the same run, um, yeah. night after night. Except for yeah. you know, maybe some, there are some big budget shows that have a tendency because of the way that they are machines. They run pretty much the same every night. Most other shows, if you go to mm-hmm. see that show, it's yeah. never going to be exactly the same. There will be variations. Yeah. There'll be differences. Um, yeah. And that's the, that's what makes it great. That's what makes it, it's the thing that somebody will talk about. There are people who saw that show that are still talking about that, about that moment today. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no way for them to share that with other, to share that experience with people who weren't there. No, it's gone. You can, even, even if we had a recording, it's gone. Um, and yeah, that is something magical. And And I think that's the thing that we have to lean into as theater creators as well. Yeah. This is a thing and it goes away because. Because that is one of the things that theater has that I see a lot of usually bigger budget stuff. And don't get me wrong, I've enjoyed the heck out of a lot of um, really great musicals and lavish productions, but they're kind of competing with Hollywood and they can't because, because we've seen Iron Man fly around. Yeah. And okay, there's certain things like the circus arts where it's still always going to be great seeing a trapeze artist do it live. But that's the point is that because you're seeing this thing that's happening right there in the moment, that's what's so magical about it. And theater creators need to lean into that because otherwise we're competing with, because we talk about this, we talk about how we're competing with Netflix and other streaming services and we're competing with, with, um, YouTube podcasts and we're competing with movies and we're competing with all kinds of stuff. And so to me, the thing is, if you're in competition, is that what you actually want to do, I think, is stop it being a competition entirely. Well, there is no competition Mm. because if you want to see, if you want to see something that's live and connected directly to you, you have to come to a live performance. And so if you lean into that, you're not actually competing with, with uh, Netflix anymore because Netflix can't do that. As theater makers, we have to lean into the experience. Um, mm-hmm. because people will pay for experiences. People will pay yeah. $50, $60 more for the experience. Um, whether they're seeing, uh, I don't know, giant projections of Van Gogh that fill a room or, or, uh, a, yeah. a, 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 a stranger things experience. People will pay for experiences. They pay for something that they get to experience. And we need to talk about that more as theater practitioners, as theater makers. Mm-hmm. Rather than like acting as if we are in competition with with a movie, because it is not. Yeah. It's if we can give people a sense of what the experience is like, yeah. that they won't be able to. This is different. This is would be mm-hmm. different from what you would see in a movie. And in fact, if we were to record this and show it to you, it'd be completely different. Yeah, and and uh, I have a few archivals over the years. I sort of regret not taking more of them, but that those are kind of more for me just so that I can kind of skim back over them every now and then and go, Oh yeah, that was fun. And that was neat, but it's not something that I really want. Like, I don't want to market them to anybody. I don't want to no. show them to anybody as a, as a product because that's not the product. That's not what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I, I, I think that I think that this is true of when I sit down to write a script, it's important to know what this script is. Is it a five minute comedy sketch or is yeah. it a full length theater piece? Because those are different. And it's the same thing with when you go to market it or sell it or put it on. What is this? How is this different? What am I going to do with this? And, and why should people come and see this is all related to all of those things. Do you like this kind of experience? Then you're going to love this show. Yeah, I think I think that's the key. And I think that we don't a lot of theaters don't do that. A lot yeah. of theaters just say, here's the name of the play and here are the people that are in it. And then they, yeah. somebody will ask what it's about and they give some kind of like explanation of the deeper meanings of the story. And people, <laughs> I think the average audience is just like, I just want to know if I'm going to like enjoy it. Like, yeah. am I going to, can you tell me yeah. more about like what I'm going to, like, am I going to have fun? Or am I, am Boy, I, how fast are you turned off when you say, why should I come see your show? And they go, well, this is an important work of theater that's yeah. talking about major issues in our times. And you're like, great, you're going to feed me broccoli. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that's, <laughs> I mean, if you look at the way that Hollywood markets movies, they are yeah. actually trying to market you on an experience. They're trying to give you a sense of what this is going to feel like when you see it. Yeah, that was the tagline the, for Superman. Yeah, you'll believe the, the a man Christopher can fly. Super, can fly. You'll believe a man can fly, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And that's, this is, this is the thing that, that Hollywood does really well. And, and theater doesn't, doesn't really do that that often is yeah. we don't, we don't sell the experiences. There's, there was a moment when I was doing Macbeth a number of years ago and I was one of the murderers that kills the Macduff children. Spoiler alert for people who didn't remember from school. <laughs> um, but you know, we gave Lady, we gave Lady Macduff a, a, a baby. Yeah. For that scene. And, yeah. you know, she had a young son who she talks to and the son is obviously going to get killed. And, and I came yeah. in and I took her baby from her. And I said, yeah. no, 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 it's going to be okay. And I held the baby like the baby was going to be fine. And uh, then uh, in this little swaddling like doll, there there was a little piece of balsa wood. And yeah. so uh, just gave it a little crack. It was just the tiniest, just the tiniest little, little sound in the audience. But the entire audience would shudder. And you could never get that on film. No, you could never no, get no. that in a movie because it's not happening in the room. But when yeah. we believe, when we make somebody suspension of disbelief, that's the thing that we do in the theater yeah. and an audience yeah. is willing to do. And then you just, just that little sound and it just like has the slightest echo in the room and the entire oh, audience shudders and reacts vocally. And, and that is the experience of live theater that I think that, that, that we need to sell somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's hard to tell people that because it's hard to tell them, hey, you're going to feel differently when you're in this room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's somehow, somehow like the idea of like, you know, this is, this is an experience that you have together. Not like a movie, but like. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, the other thing I tell people who I had somebody ask me was like, so why theater? Why not just film? And I said, because if we're, if there's a dramatic scene on a theater stage and somebody gets slapped, the entire audience will react. If yeah. you're watching a movie and somebody gets slapped, not a single person will flinch or react. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very true. And um, because everybody's locked in together at the same yeah. time doing this thing. Well, it's, I, I kind of approach my theater making uh, in a very similar way. First, I love breaking the fourth wall. I, I I hate that thing. I have an imaginary sledgehammer that I use to <laughs> bludgeon it as often as possible. There, okay, there's some shows where it works and that's fine. Mm. But but I I tend to get rid of it in my writing. Mm. Uh, when I when I block shows on the rare occasion that I'm directing, or when I'm working in in close collaboration with a director and we're developing together, I like the blocking to be while nailed down, 
not so specific that I have to stand on very, very, very clear X's all the time. Right. I acknowledge that there are certain stage pictures that sometimes you're making and some movements wind up organically filling the same slot over and over and over again. But I kind of like things to be a little bit uh, potential for chaos. There's, mm. there's a little bit of wiggle room there because you your show will change from night at to night. And you allow yourselves those brilliant, wonderful moments of, of change and possibility. They're, they're moments that are so small, by the way, that I think a lot of audiences could watch it three nights in a row and not necessarily notice them. Mm-hmm. But the actors feel them. And what the audience will notice, whether they know it or not, is the fact that this still feels real. It still feels live. It still feels yeah. in the moment. This doesn't feel over-rehearsed. This doesn't feel overly massaged. This is a thing yeah. that's live. And of course, if you break the fourth wall, all bets are off. Yeah, I have yeah. nothing but contempt for people who break the fourth wall and then the audience responds to them and then they get that deer in the headlights look. Yeah. And you're going, well, <laughs> well, you started it, pal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so true. I think that there, it could be fun uh, as as a performer on a stage to ha- to to play games that nobody knows about. Yeah. And then nobody would notice. Um, yeah. It can introduce a little bit of uh, healthy chaos into a scene. Um, of course, it shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, it can't disrupt the scene. Of course right? not. Yeah, I can't disrupt the scene. Years ago, I did a production of of Dracula, and I was playing Van Helsing, and and it didn't take me long to realize that that um you know he does a lot of standing on stage and watching things. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the exposition machine. Um, yeah, but you don't really know much about what he's feeling, and so there was this cigarette box on stage, and so my goal was to when some when nobody was looking to be able to get a cigarette. <laughs> and um, I never got one, but it gave me something to. There were like times you'd be on stage waiting for somebody to come on. And you're like, I need to be doing something here. Yeah. And, you know, it's just a little thing that, 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 that was like, it kept the scene alive and it kept, it yeah. kept me alive in a scene where I was waiting for somebody or watching for something. And uh, it, yeah. it, it, it just kept things slightly interesting. There was a production of, of Dr. Faustus that I did mm. uh, years ago. And my friend Sean Emberly, who you would have seen because he was yeah. Freud and anybody else. Yeah, yeah. So he was playing Faustus. And the, we were doing the Seven Deadly Scenes scene. Seven Deadly Sins scene, sorry. And it wasn't really working for me. The, the, it was kind of felt a little flat until at some point, uh, Sean started responding the way that a little kid sh- does when he's being shown new toys, yeah. you know, clapping with delight and being mm. horrified and, and almost like an audience. He was almost like a one man audience at a pantomime. Yeah. And as the seven deadly sins were trotted out, he was, you know, booing them and into them and collapsing for them and laughing and all this kind of stuff. And the scene came popped suddenly alive to me. And there was something wonderful about that. And, and, you kind of reminded me of it because it, he, he found a way as an observer, right. Faustus is just sitting there observing. Okay. He has a couple of exchanges with these, the seven deadly sin, but mostly they're getting trotted out and delivering their seven deadly sin monologues. And Sean, uh, Faustus is mostly just sitting there observing, but he had turned that observation into action yes. by, by making, and, and allowing, I think, the audience, or certainly me, because I was Mephistopheles watching him watch The Seven Deadly Sins. He had, he had made the scene come alive by finding a way to be interactive, even though, and, and in an organic way, in a way, as you say, that was not disruptive to the scene. It was perfect. Mm. 
it fitted it in. I thought that was wonderful. I, I've kind of taken that lesson into my guts and, and think about it every now and then. Being the character that's, whose job is just to listen in a scene it oh, can yeah. be really difficult. I mean, I, you know, yeah. if you look at, say, for example, As You Like It, the character yeah. Celia does a lot of listening mm -hmm. or watching other people. Yeah. And, but it still has to be, find a way to be present and active on the scene. Yeah. Uh, and it, it can be so difficult because there's other people doing things and yeah. she's just watching. Yeah. And that you got to create really that character. Tough. Exactly. It's tough. It's yeah. so hard to do. And I've seen yeah. good ones and I've seen and you, bad ones. Yeah. And you've got to do something that's interesting, but not so interesting that you're going to pull focus. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a tough one. You're, it's a tough one. Yeah. That's, that is tough. Um, it's been a while since I've been one of the uh, listening characters. I discovered this uh, or sort of remembered it because in indie theater, you do everything. You're your own, yeah. you know, if, if you because you don't have money to do anything. <laughs> so <laughs> you don't have money to hire a, a costume wrangler, wrangler. So everybody's just responsible for their own gear. Mm. And I, at one point I was doing a couple of walk-on parts in Theater Aquarius's uh, uh, Sound of Music. And at the end of the night, the first night, everybody else had made it home somehow, uh, or at least left the theater. And I was still there because I'd put away all my stuff. And this uh, tiny little woman who I'd never seen before hmm. came over and she was like, did you hang up your costumes? And I was like, yes. Thinking <laughs> I am a responsible grown adult male and I can do that myself. Yes. And she was like, I, I do that. <laughs> I was like, Oh, right. This is like a, like a real people show. <laughs> this is like a professional show where they have a person who washes yeah. the, washes the, the, the clothes yeah. after they're done. Um, and I was still very, I, I, I left them at their various stage because yes. I was worried about her mental checklist right. and I didn't want her running around backstage looking for things that weren't there, right. but I was always very respectful. And I, I did, um, I did, uh, um, fold it all up and and left it in neat little piles at the very <laughs> least for her that's good that's good it's always <laughs> weird when you when you're you know if you're if you're doing like indie theater and everybody's doing everything else and you're like all right so yeah. uh after this show we're gonna spray the all of the shirts with uh uh, uh with uh some water and vodka yeah. just to you know yeah. make sure that they're they're fresh tomorrow uh because we can't afford yeah. to do laundry and then you see like a big budget show and everybody uh finishes their their first costume throws it on the floor and somebody comes around takes it and takes it immediately to the laundry where it is washed yeah, yeah. dried and pressed so that it's ready for the next show um and you're like this yeah. is, these are two different worlds entirely yeah yeah um and uh i have fun in both worlds yes. i i don't look down on the 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 big thing for being you know too overblown and i i don't look down on the indie thing for being chintzy i think that yeah. they're both really fun it, I think actually, I think I have more fun in the indie world in this kind of odd chaos yes, that happens. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, me there's something really about fun. there's something about the the that chaos. There's something about the scramble to make sure that everything gets done. Yeah, that that yeah. That, you know, you you can kind of get a little addicted to, and I, I can imagine missing it in the in the bigger budget stuff. Yeah, I, I, we, there was a giant crossword puzzle backstage that we all kind of worked on. I would kind of wander the halls. And yeah. <laughs> do the crossword yeah. read a book oh oh that was my cue oh i better get backstage and yeah. okay there we go now i'm on stage 
and and sound of music in particular because you know i was i was a i was a you know a party guest and a priest and a uh nazi and in different scenes and um and so i only had these like little walk-on roles one line tops kind of thing you know um mm. but i had a blast doing it i had a lot of fun doing it. there's a lot of really great people that worked on that show and and i, I had a lot of fun on talking to them and, and hanging out with them backstage it was and it was very relaxing and nice because uh <laughs> when i write shows i tend to do that i've I've done the writer performer thing for so long that it, it, i don't know maybe i have trust issues or something like that but i'm always one of the prominent characters on stage because i'm like i know how i want this done i know how i want the role done so i'm just gonna do it mm-hmm. uh, um and i know that the, the, this show is important to me so even though i can't afford to pay people for rehearsals i'll definitely show up for all of them that, that kind right. of thing yeah yeah and yeah so i do that and so then when i get into something where somebody else is taking care of that stuff whether it's a really big budget production or just something where i'm just not the writer director producer actor whatever multi-hat guy then kind of it's very nice it's very relaxing yeah. <laughs> like oh right i just all i have to do all i have to do is memorize my lines and blocking and then show up and do them yeah. wow that's cool <laughs> I like that. My prop is laid out on a table for me in a little sectioned off square with tape. This is great. (laughs) I don't have to remember to bring it from home. No, (laughs) absolutely. Is there, is there, uh, just getting back to, to best bard bits. Um, yeah. Uh, when can people see that? So people can see that on the 22nd of September. Um, so I guess in a few days when this comes out in about a week, (laughs) I think by the time this comes out, yeah, it'll be on the 22nd of September. It's playing in Hamilton. Uh, I have been, uh, looking into, we're looking into doing it in a park. And by the time that this goes to air, we will have, uh, solidified it, of course, but, um, we're still looking at a couple of different park areas at this point. Is there a website that people will be able to go to, to find the details? There will be a Facebook page. Once I've got the (laughs) the details. They're being solidified the kind of as we speak. And yeah, I will, put it I will, in the I will send, believe yeah. me, I'll remember to send all this stuff to you. So yeah, everybody will have it. In. Yeah. Um, awesome. And awesome. Uh, so yeah, there will be a Facebook page, which is what I do. Uh, nice. Um, I think is the uh, make art theater website in general. Although we don't have anything on best barred bits on there just yet, but we'll update that soon too. Nice. By the time you hear this, <laughs> dear listeners, you will be able to find all the information you need for best bard bits. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's really nice talking to you too. It's, Absolutely. Uh, it, that's it's good talking to you. Too. Really great. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. C 
see you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.